morning, everyone. Nobody's here. Oh, oh hello. <laughs> Great to hear that somebody's here. And I mean, that's a lovely reflective song that we just sang, isn't it? And it is just... And as we sang it, well, as you sang it and I played, I did notice those very important words that I do, do pray that God would reveal his glory through the preaching of his word. And of course, it's not the preaching that will reveal the glory, it's the word that reveals the glory. And we've prayed for that, and we've asked God to do that, and we've just sung about that. You will find it very helpful to have the Bible open in front of you, John 14. You'll find it uh, helpful also, probably, to have this piece of paper, which has an outline on the back of where we're going, where you can write notes and jot down questions that you might like to ask using the QR code on the other side of the page to send through questions at some other time. And we'll get back to you through the week. I'll get back to you through the week. As I said last week, this is a three-week series. This is the middle of three weeks, thinking about how Jesus being the way, the truth and the life impacts us. And today we're thinking more about Jesus as the truth and how that makes a difference. And in particular, with that little edge for, the, for those on, who are not yet believers, who are not yet at the point of putting their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's where you are today, then please, I hope you'll find today helpful and I hope you feel really free to ask questions and raise comments and stuff like that. Last week, we looked at how Jesus is the only way to God. He's the only true way of coming to God. And we actually stepped on the toes of some of the things we're going to look at today because part of what we saw last week was that in our age, over the past 50 years in particular, truth has become very individualised. Certainly, in the realm of religion and, to some extent, morality, we allow, in fact, I think more these days, we insist on personal freedom. Freedom to believe whatever we want to believe and up to a point to act in whatever way we want to act, quote-unquote, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. But, of course, it's not just in the areas of morality or religion. We can see this leaking out into the rest of life. Truth has become individualised in areas that previously have been sort of unassailably factual, if you want. So, let me ask you, did we land on the moon? Well, some people don't think they do they? Oh, did the Holocaust happen? Do vaccines help prevent disease? Or are they just microchipped by mega companies? See, they are things, you know, vaccines and, and the landing on the moon, all of these sort of things were things we once accepted as being actually true, and now there are some who call those things into question. And so you wonder, what, what is fact? What is out there? What is true? They call them into question. They call them lies. And what's more, even though we all want and need to have people tell us the truth, personally, we don't want to be lied to, all of us, at some stage, somewhere, indulge in falsehood. Everyone tells lies. And we salve our consciences by excusing them as white lies or, or for the good of the other person. Though, in general, I must say, 
at least in my case, and I think from the people I've spoken to, often our lies are actually to protect ourselves more than they are to protect other people. I remember years and years ago giving a talk like this and making that comment, everyone's lying, and this person came up to me and said, how do you know, how did you know me so well? I said, well, I didn't know you so well. The Bible knows you so well. The Bible tells me everyone's liars. Everyone tells lies. But I'm not a liar, they said. Ah, yes, but you tell lies. Yes, there's a very fine distinction there, isn't there, between telling lies and being a liar, maybe. So, you see the problem here? Even though we want truth from others, we want to be told the truth, we so often practice this double standard. Not that we all lie all of the time. I'm not suggesting that for a moment. But when the pressure is on and the question comes, at the very least, the desire to tell a falsehood is immense, isn't it? Now, perhaps you don't think telling lies is an issue for you. And I remember myself thinking exactly the same things. But here is the challenge for you. If this is where you're at in your head, if you think to yourself, no, no, lying's not my problem... Go a week without telling a lie. Just try it. Here's your challenge. Come back to me next week and tell me, nope, this week I didn't tell a lie, a falsehood, a half-truth, a deception, nothing. I remember giving this challenge some years ago and somebody said, that wasn't fair, a week's too long. I said, okay, go a day. That wasn't fair either, they said. And I know this is true of you because it's true of me not because you and I are exactly the same, but because the Bible is quite clear about this. In Jeremiah 17, God says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? You see, we all have this huge problem with truth, but truth is necessary. Telling a falsehood has some obvious implications. For example, if we tell someone to go left when they should go right, then we've misled them, haven't we? Which may have greater implications of just ending up in, instead of down at the station up at Ashfield or something like that, it could actually take people into danger, couldn't it? The wrong information can lead to bad outcomes. And that's not a matter of opinion, it's a matter of fact. My brother-in-law in a regional city in another country that I won't talk about, once asked somebody there he needed to find an ATM. Now, of course, they didn't call it ATM there, but, you know, you know what I mean. And he was shown the way, quote-unquote. More and more, as he was shown the way, the neighbourhood got sleazier and sleazier and darker and danker, and eventually my brother-in-law just decided to run for it because he was more and more in fear, not just of being mugged, but in fear of his life. Now, that leads to another aspect of, telling, of not speaking the truth. Lies, falsehoods, deceit is destructive. Even so-called good lies, white lies, if you want. Because when we're told lies, it does something very fundamental to us. It destroys trust. The deepest part of any relationship is trust. And in some senses, it's what delineates a friend from an acquaintance, someone you can put your trust in, someone you can rely upon. We trust our friends. And when our friends tell us lies, then we really feel betrayed, don't we? 
Right? We, we, they, they've destroyed that trust to some extent and we know that we can't rely on them in quite the same way anymore. Now, that happens at various levels, of course. Somebody may mislead you about who paid for dinner, okay? That may still be reliable when the big crisis comes. But how can you be sure? What leads you to think that they will stay reliable? And so this means that we are isolated, that our fund relationships are fundamentally altered. We're increasingly on our own as we become less and less convinced that people are here for us when we really need them. Being a true friend doesn't just mean telling you the truth, but being there, being faithful, never giving up, and never varnishing that truth for the sake of your own comfort. And this leads us to Jesus. Jesus, you see, claims to be the truth. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. So the very first thing I want to get out of the way is that Jesus really existed. That isn't, of course, what he's saying here. He's not sort of standing in front of the disciples and saying, you know, I think therefore I am. He's not doing that sort of thing. That would be a bit ridiculous. He's there, it's obvious that he exists to them. But it is worth saying because over the past 200 years, there have been those who deny the existence of the historical Jesus. But there can be little doubt, even if you don't accept the gospel accounts, that Jesus actually walked the earth in Palestine. We can date him quite accurately from the evidence we have. He was born about 4 BCE. It's an interesting thing when you think about that, isn't it? He was born four years before Christ. That's weird. Anyway, it, yeah, that's because of dating issues they had in, the, mid, in the, the Julian calendar and stuff like that. He died in Palestine, 33 AD, roughly, under the reign of Tiberius Caesar. We know these things. We have documentary evidence. We have the Gospels at one stage, written between... 30 and 60 years after his death. And we have mentions by the, the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus from about 90 AD in his book, The Antiquities of the Jews. He says, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both, uh, both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. This is a Roman Jewish historian writing about Jesus. So he was certainly true in that sense, but there is the other sense, the sense that I want to focus on. He is utterly reliable. He always delivers on his promises. In that sense, he's true. He never fails to keep a commitment. And he always told the truth so that those around him were never misled by him. Now, it's true. It's true that, that often what he said wasn't understood. It can be hard to get your head around and certainly it wasn't accepted by those around him often, but he was never false. He never misled people. He was completely trustworthy in what he said and in what he did, which gives real weight 
to what he's just said before the verse, verse chapter 14, verse, one, verse 6, when he's speaking to disciples about his death, John 14, 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would, have to- would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Now he's saying, you know me. You know, you've watched me, you've been with me. You know I deliver. And whatever else is about to happen, I will not forget you. In fact, I'm preparing for you. And this is an extraordinary claim. Now, if you've been a Christian a little while, then this will probably have just slipped through your consciousness. You probably won't feel the weight of it. But in the next few hours, Jesus is arrested, he's sham tried, and he's crucified within a few hours. And Jesus is saying here, this Jesus who delivers on everything he's ever promised, he's saying, I'm going to look after you. I'm going to care for you. I'm preparing a place for you, even after he's died. Now, that's extraordinary, isn't it? In fact, it might be said that it's impossible, except Jesus has already done so many impossible things. You can't just write it off. And these men, these men who had walked and talked and watched and lived with him for the past three years, trusted him. And many later spent their lives preaching and teaching about him. And they were awfully persecuted for him and sometimes went to their deaths for him. There was something about this man that meant people who knew him trusted him, even after he had died. Which, for those of us that know the rest of the story, is because, of of course, he didn't stay dead, did he? You know, like, there, there is the next part of the story, which is next week's talk. So you have to come back to find out what happened. And I think you probably know that he rose again. That's when we look at Jesus is the life. But this faithfulness that transcends death shows us the truth about death. It shows us that death is not truly the end. There is life beyond the grave. And that death, while it does come to everyone, it's not the last word. It's not the final full stop on life that is so widely held. And this changes things. It changes things for us whether we're Christian or we're not yet a Christian. Because death is no longer the end and there must be an account made for life because Jesus is going to his father's house. Did you remember that when he said that? Now, last week we saw that this was Jesus' common way of talking about God. He's going to the house of God, heaven, and he's going to prepare a place for those who follow him who love him, who the Bible tells us, you see, that death, physical death, is only a symptom of a deeper problem. It's not the ultimate crusher. Death is not the main problem. Sin is the problem. Sin is the ultimate issue of which death is just an outcome. Sin is when we turn our backs on God and ignore him, when we want our self-rule, when we want our independence, 
no one to tell us what to do, especially God. And this rebellion, this sin, cuts us off from God. It cuts us off from life and brings us under God's judgment. But Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying that those who follow him will have life in God's house after judgment and that he's guaranteeing that to his followers. And the life that he offers is not just an extension of physical life. Now, it is a physical life, and we'll think about that next week, but we cannot escape escape the fact that we all die. We all physically die. As I get older, my body slowly crumbles around me. In fact, I remember at one time in my life, I used to call old people crumblies. Now I just have to look in the mirror. The thought of a simple eternal eternal extension to life is less and less appealing the older I get. Rather, what I want to be, and I was so tempted to, to put up Alphaville at this point, I want to be young forever. That is, not just to have life, but to have a quality of life, an overflowing life, what the Bible would call eternal life, which is not a quantity of life, but a quality of life, where life is something to be reveled in, not just endured, where all suffering and pain and tears are gone because we are no longer disconnected from our purpose but connected to it. We are connected with God. We are connected with our maker, the one who made us and gave us life and breath and everything good. You see, we often treat God badly in the way we think about him. We so often think of God as the great killjoy in heaven who says, whatever you do in all of your life, just don't have fun. He's the great killjoy in heaven, the cosmic policeman whose universal answer is no and whose universal outlook is stern. It's an awful view of God. Terrible. Who is actually a generous God who holds back no good gift who delights in giving us good things. James chapter 1 says this, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Now today is the 2nd of October, and if you've been to the shops, you will see that Christmas stuff is already out. There are things that I hate about Christmas, the hype, the advertising, the greed, the want, want, want of it all. It's, it's awful, really, isn't it? And in our family, many years ago, General actually thought about, should we try and ignore it altogether? Now, of course, that's impossible, isn't it? We didn't do that because we can't really ignore it in our society unless we homeschooled the kids and never let them outside, didn't turn on the radio, didn't turn on the television, didn't have newspapers, didn't have anything. Of course, this was way before smart devices, so there was none of that going on. But also because we want to give gifts to the kids. 
It's a great thing to do. While the materialism and greed of it all is awful, the fun and the joy and the anticipation of giving is just something so special. And if we're like that, if we are like that, if, how much more willing is our Father in heaven to give good things? God gives us every good thing. And it's not just, it's not that God gives us everything we want or desire, that's not what's going on, that's patently not true, but everything that is good comes from God. Anything in this life that is enjoyable, we only have it because God has given it to us. And it is when we are rightly connected to him that he gives us true purpose and meaning in life. That's actually what the Bible calls righteousness, to be properly connected to God. It's not just being a goody-goody, it's being properly connected to God. It's not that sense of being better than everyone else. It's actually the sense of belonging to God's family because he graciously has brought us into that family. And being in that family gives us meaning and purpose because now we can live the way that we were meant to live, the way God made us, living the way that God has designed us for. And if you think about it, that's the way it should be, isn't it? After all, if God made life and gave it to us, then he's quite likely to know the best way for us to live it. Now, this is going to take us way, way back. For anybody who is more than 40 years old, you'll just have to believe me if you're not yet that old. There used to be a thing called VCRs. Remember VCRs? Yeah. Now, VCRs, I remember when we got our first VCR, I was given it for my 30th birthday, which was five, six years ago now. We quickly worked out how to record a few things on it. But I hadn't found out how all the different book bits worked. There was, you know, there was a manual about this thick. Nobody ever read the manual. You just pressed buttons and hoped, right? And things worked. But there was, it did so many things. Most people didn't know how to use all their VCR. They just turned it on, turned it off and watched something, right? To use the VCR to the full, though, you had to read the manual. You had to understand what... There was no YouTube, right? You couldn't watch a YouTube video about it. You have to read the manual or at least have to do things the way that the, the maker of the VCR intended you to do. Now, when, my, when we got our first VCR, when I was 30, my daughter was about two. And one day the VCR stopped working. Every time we put a VCR cassette in, it would pop back out. And, and it was still under, still under warranty. So I called JVC. It wasn't that particular one, but it was like that. We called JVC and they sent a guy out and he looked at it and he fiddled around with it for a while. And I was at home and he called out, Mr Simpson, I said, yes. He said, do you have any children? All the parents here are smiling now. They know what's coming. I said, Yes. And he pulled out this little toy from in the middle of the VCR and said, tell them not to post things anymore. <laughs> so she had posted one of her little cars into the... And of course, I couldn't see it. But it didn't work because it wasn't being used the way it was supposed to be used. The same is true for life. To live a full and abundant, joyous life, you need to know and consult the maker. You have to go looking for the manual, if you want. 
find out how he made us to function and to live that way. It is much more enjoyable, it's much more realistic and it has a better outcome for us. The full life, the purposeful life, you see, is only a reflection of the fact that we now live in a right relationship to God. And all that comes about because Jesus is the truth. He is the faithful one whose promises span death. So what is reliable? We've covered a lot of ground. We've thought about truth, we've thought about purpose and faithfulness and the outcome of it all hinges on one question. Who can you rely on? Where do you look to find out the truth about life and meaning? Now, our world basically wants us to make up our own meaning, to make up our own truth. We are told over and over again, every time you hear another sportsman talk about it, so find your dream. Find your dream and then anything is possible. But the reality is so many of us live in constant frustration of not being able to live that dream. Or even sometimes, for some people, even finding the dream. We are not completely free beings. We can't just do whatever we want. There are so many restrictions and responsibilities on us. We may like the idea of spending every day at the beach, surfing, but except for people like Lane Beachley or Mark Ocalupo and a few others, how will anyone live like that? Or what we alternatively do is we drop the level of our dreams and they become trivial or crass. Who's the next person we can hook up with? Who's the next, what's the next promotion in my job? Or the next overseas holiday that I can sit down and sort of subtly compare and compete with my friends about as I tell them all the wonderful stories. But none of these things are actually fulfilling. None of them help reliably help us understand the way that we were created to live. But Jesus does, because Jesus is the truth. He is the truth. He gives us meaning and purpose and is absolutely trustworthy in everything he says. So many times I know I look for collegial praise. Gee, Ken, you did a great job today. What a wonderful thing you did there. Or praise from you. What a great sermon. Now, I, I, of course, I love hearing that, but actually I love hearing much more what challenges people what they're thinking about. As nice as those things are, my real meaning can only come from the true and faithful one, Jesus. He has no hidden agendas. He has no reasons why he would falsely praise me. His rebuke is genuine. His love is genuine. If you're Christian today, what areas are you holding back and thinking that you know better than Jesus? Because if he is the truth, if he is the faithful one, why do we think we know better than him? And we so often do. And if you aren't yet a Christian, 
Do you want to find someone who will give you real meaning and purpose in life? Someone who is so utterly truthful and reliable, you can be completely confident in what he says and what he promises. Then consider Jesus. Look to him. Trust him. If you'd like to find out more about that, please use the connection form. Let us know. If you'd like to know more about this, drop us an email if you're in YouTube land. Send it to info at summerhillchurch.org.au. It's on our website everywhere. Do something about it. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to Lauren. Come and talk to a Christian friend. But do something. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may we see with real clarity the invitation that you are making to us to rely on you through the faithful and true Jesus. Open our eyes to the reality of life without you and the enormous freedoms and joys that we can have when we live the way you've created us to live. May we trust in Jesus as the only truth. And in doing so, knowing the way to you and being given real life. Thank you that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. Amen. Now I think we're about to sing again. And we're going to sing a song called Beautiful Saviour. And so it's singing about this wonderful God, this wonderful Saviour, who is the way, the truth and the life.